0: This is Bloomberg Business Week. With Carol Masser from Bloomberg Radio.
1: We know this past week is going to go down in U.S. history as the U.S. House of Representatives impeach President Trump for a second time with 10 Republicans voting in favor. We talked about that with Josh Green earlier. A reminder, too, of the division and dysfunction we are seeing in the GOP. For seven years, Adam Gentleson has been had an up-close view of growing Senate dysfunction as a top aide to former Democratic Majority Leader Harry Reid of Nevada. He writes about it in his new book, Switch: The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of America. American Democracy. He is Public Affairs Director at Democracy Forward. It's a legal advocacy group against corruption in the executive branch and government. Uh, Adam joins us on the phone from Maryland. First of all, did I say your last name correctly? i like to get it right.
0: You did. You did. Thank you very uh, much.
1: All right. Well, Adam, it's great to have you here. Congratulations. First, I've got to ask you before we dig a little bit deeper into your book, is the last two weeks, the hate, the anger, the division, the polarization, are you surprised that we're here?
0: I hate to say it, but I'm not surprised. I think this is the logical result of what the president has been stoking for the last four years. Um, And, you know, something I talk about in the book, I mean, you know, the rise of these forces predates him. Um, He took over the GOP in terms of assuming its leadership, but a lot of the forces that propelled him to office existed before he even stepped into the political arena. So I think that it's, horrible to see what we've been seeing over the last week, but it is sort of sadly the culmination of a lot of trends of extreme partisanship that have been building for decades now.
1: So explain your title, The Kill Switch. What do you mean?
0: So when I worked in the Senate, one of the things you hear a lot is that the Senate is supposed to act as a cooling saucer. Uh, this is dates back to an apocryphal story about George Washington explaining to Thomas Jefferson as they were drinking some tea uh, that the Senate was supposed to act uh, like the saucer under Jefferson's tea, uh, the You would splash out of the saucer, cool on the uh, splash out the cup, and cool on the saucer before it was ready to drink. Uh, What that was true at a time, Um, the founders uh, created the Senate to be deliberative and thoughtful. They also created it to not have a filibuster and to not have a supermajority threshold for passing legislation. They created it as a majority rule institution. It was designed to be thoughtful, but also to get things done uh, and for debate to be thorough but limited. What we see today in the modern Senate is a body that allows the party that's out of power to use the rules of the, as they have come to evolve to stop everything that comes before the chamber. Uh, this combines with the forces of partisanship that are dominating our politics today to turn the Senate from what was once a cooling saucer now into a kill switch that shuts down everything that the federal government tries to do.
1: And a big reason for that is in something that you really dig deeply into in your book is the filibuster.
0: That's right. And so the book explains the historical evolution of the filibuster. Um, This is something that, you know, if folks know anything about the Senate, they tend to know about the filibuster. And when they think of it, they tend to think of uh, Jimmy Stewart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington, right? Uh, Mm -hmm. Holding the floor, talking at length, uh, sort of using it as as an underdog against the forces of corruption and entrenched power. Um, The thing is, this is not really what the filibuster has ever truly been in practice, uh, and even though it is directly associated with the Senate in the popular imagination, it was not part of the Senate and was not meant to be part of the Senate. Um, When the framers created the Senate, they did not include the filibuster. And not only did they not include it, they argued against ever creating something like it. They were writing the Constitution in the shadow of the Articles of Confederation, which had established a supermajority threshold uh, for most bills to pass Congress. The framers saw that that was a disaster and they argued very clearly in the Federalist Papers and other writings that establishing a supermajority threshold would have the direct effect of giving what they called a pertinacious minority mm. the ability to bring everything to a halt for the sole purpose of embarrassing the majority. You know, they were realists; mm-hmm. They understood this essential fact of politics that right. if you give the party that's out of power this ability to throw a monkey wrench in the system, they're going to use it. Uh, it took Basically, two centuries for that power to evolve in the way that it has today, uh, but that is what we've come to see. That's what we've come to see happen in the Senate: is the minority use that power and that monkey wrench in exactly the way that the framers warned us they would.
1: One thing I want to ask you: um, take us back to the first time you got to the Senate. What was it like? What was your first experience of it?
0: Uh, the first time I got to the Senate, I was I was brought up to meet my boss, uh, Senator Harry Reid. Uh, And it's an incredibly ornate uh, building. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of scenes were on display this last week of the inside of the Capitol for the wrong reasons. Uh, But when you're there and able to appreciate it, it is incredibly dramatic. You've got painted uh, walls, you've got arched ceilings, you've got giant chandeliers, uh, you've got historic portraits everywhere. It's overwhelming. Uh, It feels a little bit like Versailles uh, and a little bit, uh, uh, a little fancy for a democracy, uh, more than you might expect. Um, But it's an incredibly intimidating place. Uh, and the leader's office uh, is—they've they, they've nicknamed it the Taj Mahal uh, for a good reason. Uh, it's got these huge views of the mall, uh, dramatic ceilings, huge fireplaces. It's—it's it's a lot to take in as, as a young staffer.
1: Um, yeah, and I think it's interesting when we read about right. We grow up reading about history. We read about the capital, and it is something. It's got. It must have just been something to actually be kind of part of it then. Uh, and did it live up to your expectations? Did it? Did it go beyond your expectations? Or did it start to disappoint? <laughs> How quickly? My, my big,
0: yeah, pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> um, my, my big takeaway was was the big, the massive gap between what you expect from such a grand institution and what it was able to produce. Uh, you know, I was there during a period of historic gridlock. One of the defining experiences for me, I talk about this in the book, mm-hmm. was uh, after the murder of, of 20 first graders in Newtown, Connecticut, uh, the absolute failure of the Senate to pass any kind of policy solution, even in the middle of the road, uh, some might argue, not even, not even strong enough policy like background checks. Um, it, it is stunning, you know, this institution that has a reputation for being slow and has a reputation for working in a deliberative fashion, uh, but I think that in many ways has been used as an excuse for it to simply do nothing, and I think that's the problem that we're seeing today. We, we, as, we as a federal government are simply unable to operate in an intelligent way to meet the policy challenges that we face. Uh, And and part of what I argue in the book is that we need to find ways to restore the Senate, to keep what's good about it, to let it continue to be a deliberative body, uh, but actually make it be a place where good ideas don't just go to die, good ideas go there to be developed and perfected and then actually passed.
1: What's been Mitch McConnell's role in all of this?
0: Well, no one has done more to increase gridlock and dysfunction in Congress than Mitch McConnell. Um, When he took over as leader, there was a historic rise in the use of the filibuster under his watch. And at his direction, I should be clear about that. Um, It was explicitly a strategy of his. He decided when President Obama came into office that he could attack Obama's core political brand uh, of fixing our broken politics in Washington, something President Obama talked about from his convention speech in 2004 all the way up through his inauguration in 2008. McConnell knew that if he used the tools of obstruction at his disposal – even though at the time he represented a minority of senators representing just 35% of the American population, that he could bring that political brand down to earth. And voters would see a gridlock Washington. They would see that Obama had not delivered on his promises. And then Republicans would romp to massive political victories, as they did almost immediately in the 2010 midterms, when Republicans gained enormous numbers of seats in both the House and Senate. So, you know, he brought gridlock. The problem is it worked. And that has increased the incentives for both sides to deploy
1: gridlock. Which is a shame, right? This whole idea of bipartisan deals, I think, you know, go back... Multiple decades. I've said this a million times, uh, Adam, on air. I remember um, being at a Bloomberg event. This was a few years ago, and it was Alan Greenspan. And he said, when he got to Washington in the 70s, he'd go to a social event, and you would have both Democrats and Republicans at that social event socializing. He said, now you would do something, and this was, mind you, still a few years ago, but he said, you'd go somewhere, and it was either all Democrats or all Republicans. You know, how did we get so far away from, from being you know, lawmakers represented by we the people <laughs> um, right. to do our bidding, right? While we go about working, supporting our families, right? It was interesting, I had a car ride in this morning as an immigrant, an older individual, very thoughtful. He said, we're the ones, you and me, he pointed to me, you know, to keep the engine going, the engine being the economy. He said, our voice, we vote for those to protect us. We put you there to be our eyes. And this is what you give us. He said, the word that describes this moment for him politically is betrayal. I had to write it down because it just stood with me. But right, Mm -hmm. this is what our lawmakers, our policymakers, Democrats, and both Republicans, I hate to point the finger, but, you know, it's just become so dysfunctional.
0: No, that's absolutely right and the problem is that our political system has come to incentivize gridlock uh, you know these are larger forces at work these are the forces of polarization that we see in all aspects of our lives right where we shop uh, you know what what we watch on TV uh, all those things the big sort uh, it's come to the Senate and the Senate was one of the last American institutions to actually fall to this sorting but it has fallen now uh, and what that means is that the party that's out of power has enormous incentives to block the other side so that they can regain power. Now, one of the things that's interesting here is that you would expect sort of narrow majorities to increase the possibilities for bipartisanship, right? Right. If both parties sort of have evenly balanced power, maybe they'll work together. The problem, as political scientists have found for for decades now, is that narrow majorities actually increase the incentives to obstruct because the party that's out of power knows it only takes one or two more seats for them to get back into power. So if they make the party in power look bad, the party out of power in the very next election can ride that voter discontent back to power by gaining just a few seats. So well, narrow majorities can actually be very bad for cooperation.
1: One last quick question Is there a simple way out? Is it just? Get, I think you need.
0: Yeah. Go ahead. I think you need to. Yeah. I think you need to get rid of the filibuster, but also restore some of the incentives for senators to be on the floor together, to talk to each other, uh, to bring amendments to the floor, to deconstruct the power of leadership, so that rank and file senators can bring bills to the floor. You need to make the Senate a free and open place again. That's what it was designed to be, right. uh, and I think you need to go back to that.
1: God, it's time to like pull out the history books and remember what this is supposed to be all about. Adam Gentleson, thank you so much. Public Affairs Director, Democracy Forward, former Deputy Chief of Staff to Senator Harry Reid. His new book that is out, Kill Switch, The Rise of the Modern Senate and the Crippling of American Democracy, uh, really just gets to the heart of some of our problems.